Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. We were always looking for, what else does theater do? We took on more and more impossible projects in order to keep testing this notion of, does it have meaning? Does it have relevance? How can it be used? How can somebody who's not interested in acting at all still benefit by not only watching theater, but by doing theater. That's Terry Grease. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Irondale Ensemble Project. It's a theater company rooted in improvisation and committed to the idea that theater can be a force for change as well as entertainment. In 2015, after the death of Eric Garner at the hands of New York City police officers, Irondale created a program to help the police and the community build trust and mutual understanding. This is so great to be talking with you, Terry, because what you do, I find so personally inspiring. Well, thank you. And you've been doing it for 40 years. It's harder to learn lines these days, but we're still going strong. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting concept because it's a theater company, and most, most theater companies are founded to do theater. And you have an extension to that sentence, to do theater... To do theater that really uh, transforms people's lives. We started with uh, just a small band of us, three three of us really, and we were doing workshops in schools and we were also, of course, interested in doing the great plays of the world. And then as we picked up more people in order to survive, we had to teach the workshops in the schools because there was no money for theater, but there was money for education. Hmm. But... What we learned in the schools proved to be of tremendous value to us as actors. We learned how to hold an audience. We learned how to make work that was immediate. And we learned, you know, you talk about this all the time, Alan, we learned how to read the audience. Yeah. You remind me of one of my first jobs. I think my first job as an actor was to do Actors' Equity Children's Theater. Mm -hmm. And we would cart scenery, our own scenery and costumes to schools and do plays for children and to hold their attention. It wasn't hard to read them because they were calling things out from the audience. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. I was was doing a show. uh, It was actually written by Ossie Davis. This was my my first equity show, and it was about the life of Frederick Douglass. Oh, I didn't know he wrote that. And, of course, I was... uh, 
playing all the the, the white slave driving uh, bigots in the in the play. And there was a scene that took place in the cotton fields, and we were playing Detroit, and in a thousand seat theater for every high school in Detroit. And at one point, I had to say a very inflammatory thing. And as I said it, one of the actors who was down on his knees pretending to pick cotton said, "Uh uh-oh, you better duck. And the soda cans came out (laughs) of the audience. I mean, truly, it was a life-threatening experience. Soda cans and programs and pencils and whatever they had, they threw at me. (laughs) You were too good. I guess that was a good review, but it was a scary moment. (laughs) So how did you branch out further? Because you started creating your own plays. Yes, we, we did. We, we, we did what we call collision pieces. We would take a classic and we would merge that with contemporary Americana or sometimes something right out of the news. Mm. We did a piece called Outside the Law, which took the story of Pretty Boy Floyd and J. Edgar Hoover and uh, the beginnings of the FBI. We also added Oliver North in there and a couple of other historical <laughs> characters. And it combined it with uh, As You Like It, Shakespeare. Oh, what, that's interesting. And, and the reason we did that was because if you read As You Like It, there's a question here. Rosalind, the main female character, is perhaps the most powerful person in the kingdom. And she decides to not use her power but to go off into the forest and play love games with Orlando. So we were questioning, what is the responsibility of the average citizen to make change in their world? And in the forest of Arden, you meet all the outlaws. And who are the outlaws? It's Robin Hood. It's it's Pretty Boy Floyd. It's Jesse James. It's all these people. And they challenge her in a very uh, Brechtian way. They say, what are you doing? What are you doing? And that's, that was the nature of that piece. It was, it was a great hodgepodge. I got to play uh, both Dukes, the good Duke and the bad Duke. And uh, it was quite a, a, a lark. It was great fun. So we did these kind of pieces. And at the same time, we were always looking for what else does theater do? How else can it be of use? So it, it's not reduced to, and I, I, I've never thought of it this way, but other people think of it as, well, that's entertaining. And... Is it necessary to the life of a community? And we have always believed that it it definitely was. But we took on more and more impossible projects in order to keep testing this notion of does it have meaning? Does it have relevance? How can it be used? How can somebody who's not interested in acting at all still benefit by not only watching theater, but by doing theater? The real example of that is when you began to develop the project called To Protect, Serve, and Understand, which really took it to another level. And that began with a real particular experience, I think you had, watching the videotapes of the Eric Garner death. It was at 2015, I think. Yes, that's right. It shocked me as it shocked the rest of the world. He was stopped by the police for selling cigarettes. Yes, he was a known character in Staten Island, and they knew that he did this. He stood on a corner, and he was selling loose cigarettes. And I think a storekeeper complained about him. So the police came out, and they tried to persuade him to give himself up. And he was angry. He was very angry. He was a 
big African-American man. Uh, his look was very threatening. And all of a sudden, as you're watching the video, they're on top of him and they're choking him and they're throwing him down to the ground. And he's saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And the poor man was, was killed. Um, as I watched this video, first time you're, you're, you're outraged and then you see it so often that you become a little bit numb to it. Finally, I started watching it almost as a theater piece. I see things that they are not either because of bias or because they don't know how to see them, but they're not picking up cues. I wonder what that means. And I wonder what would happen if they were trained to pick up those cues. You know, from the time you say you want to be an actor and shove, somebody shoves you out on the stage, they say, listen, mm. learn how to listen, mm. learn how to see. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. I'm still only half good at it. But um, I said, you know, I wonder what would happen if this were part of their training program. I wonder if you brought actors in, how would that affect the way police are, are trained to deal with community members? And I, I was angry and, and I wrote a, a snail mail letter to Commissioner Bratton at the time. Bratton was a, a, a tough guy and he was a visionary. I thought this was going to go nowhere. Uh, two days later, I didn't even think the mail could go anywhere in that time. Two days later, I got a call from one police headquarters saying, when can you come down and talk about a pilot project? <laughs> That's amazing. I remember hearing you tell about the words you used to the commissioner, which was, I'm sorry you need what we do. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a great introduction yeah. to what you do. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm really sorry about it, but I think you need what we do. And we got steered to a wonderful woman, Deputy Commissioner of, of Community Affairs, Susan Herman, who was a dynamo. And she got it right away. She said, I understand what you're talking about. I understand improvisation. I understand role-playing. I understand theater. Let's do it. Let me see if I could sell it to some of the gray beards upstairs, and let's do it. So the police department went in on this with us, and they agreed at that point to pay the officers to attend our workshops, which was an enormous boon to the project. I don't think we could have done this had the officers not been assigned to Irondale every Tuesday night for 10 weeks. Each workshop lasted 10 weeks. Yes, four hours a night. And they were chosen by their superiors, the officers, well, or what? They, they, were, they were submitted by their superiors, and then we would interview them here at the theater. And uh, we talked to everyone for about half an hour, and we videotaped the interviews. And we asked them questions like, um, when was the last time you had your mind changed? Or um, what do you think the problem is these days between officers and, and the community? And people... We chose the the people who seemed to have the most extreme opinions and the people who had the op most open mind. Both. Yeah. I want to make change. I have no idea why things are bad. I have my feeling. I think it's the media. I think it's the this. I think it's the that. Uh, people don't understand us. Uh, but I will commit to doing this work for 10 weeks. And I have to say, the bravery the courage involved in doing this. These are not people who are actors. 
they come in yeah. cold. They come in cold. All they know is there's going to be some theater going on, some improv. They don't even, sometimes they don't even realize that. But the ones who do, do they say, what, what the hell is this going to be? Yes. What the <laughs> hell is this going to be? And I was terrified for the first workshop. I, I was just imagining disaster. But I thought, okay, what can we do to level the playing field? I said, let's eat. Yeah. Everybody likes to eat. So they, they share a meal first thing. They share a meal first thing, and it's always home-cooked by a, a, one of our community members here. And we sit around these big tables, and we eat. First, we talk about the Mets, or we talk about what they're doing that week. And then, unfortunately, there's usually some sort of incident that I can refer, reference from the newspapers or magazines, something that produces an inflammatory conversation. Mm. And we go right into that facilitate that conversation, making sure everybody's heard. And then when it's at its peak, I say, okay, let's stop. And we go play. And we start with warm-up games and we sing a little bit and we go right into Viola Spolin's improvisations, her theater games. Yeah. And, you know, after all these years, I'm, I'm just amazed at the depth and nuance of Viola Spolin's work, uh, how it really does bring together so people so quickly it establish it establishes a common language that people learn to speak together where they can really start to communicate and going from the joy of playing together we go back to conversation oh that's interesting and we know the conversation is going to be here's the elephant in the room this is going to get people angry this is going to get people upset so we temper it. We go back and forth. How do they go back to? Play. Have you done that sometimes? Interrupting the meal and they have to go back to eating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's always put your, you fork, know, put yeah. your fork and knife down, especially. Well, a lot, <laughs> a lot of times the first exercise will start at the dinner table. Oh yeah, something you can do in your seats. Yeah. You know, let's count to ten as a group. Only one person can say a number at a time, and. Uh, all of a sudden, people really start to listen to each other. Yes, yes. Such a simple thing like that. Such a simple thing. But yet it's not. It's, 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 I, I find it profound. After all these years I've been using these exercises, they're still revelatory to me. Me too. And parenthetically, the idea of eating together is such a rich one. It must take us back to our evolutionary roots it's such a powerful experience to eat together. I think you're right. When I was directing a movie that I wrote called Four Seasons, it was about three couples who were extremely close friends. And the actors were wonderful actors, but they weren't necessarily close friends. So we had three weeks of rehearsal, and the most important parts of those rehearsals were the meals we ate together. Yeah. Stories came out. Trust came out. They saw each other behind the facade of the uh, how they were known as actors and became people to the other performers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was I, I mentioned the word courage and bravery before. Imagine for one second that you are a police officer and you know people don't like you and people think you are the pig and people mm -hmm. think you are uh, out to oppress them. And you get into these arguments, you get into these hot discussions, but you come back every week for 10 weeks. Mm. You say, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I can change minds. I don't know if I should change minds. I'm going to come back again. And they come back again. Part of it is because they have fun. 
You know, yeah, part of it that, is... That's the, the, the secret ingredient. Yes, that is the secret ingredient. We had a, a Black Lives Matter act- activist, and we had a young female cop. And we were doing a conversation exercise where I asked them to, um, before they were allowed to talk, they had to repeat in their own words what the person before them said to that person's satisfaction. So it's really, it's an intense listening game. It's hard to play. It, it's sort of like slugging through the mud sometimes. But at one point, the young woman, the Black Lives activist said, she pointed to this police officer, female police officer, and she said, you're the only one in this room I'm really afraid of because I think you could kill me. And the police officer, also a young woman, you could see her eyes roll back in her head and she was flabbergasted and they started going at each other. And it was, I was, I was a little nervous because I'm not a therapist and I don't want to cross that line into therapy, but I didn't know what else to do. So I said, okay, let's sing. Hmm. And they circled up and these two people were standing next to each other and Two minutes later, they were singing, I like the flowers, I like the daffodils, ah, and they're holding <laughs> arm in arm, and they're smiling, and they're laughing, and I was gobstruck. So is there something about singing, like eating together, that, I think that so. has a, an effect on us we don't expect? I guess if, I, if I've learned anything from this, somewhere buried deep in our DNA, we have the need to connect. We, we are looking to connect with each other. And that is balanced by, or interfered with, by a deep need to protect ourselves from a stranger. That's right. Or somebody that we perceive as a stranger. And, and through improv, you, they learn they're not so strange after all. That's right. That's right. When we come back from our break... Terry Grease tells me about the remarkable potency of a police officer's cap. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. Complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. 
powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Terry Grease. At the end of their 10-week workshop, the participants put on a performance before an audience of family, colleagues, and people from the community. Now, what happens at those performances? They are really like, I'd say almost like guided lecture demonstrations. So there's work that they've done together, and there are scenes perhaps that they've created together that we will recreate. The centerpiece is uh, a series of interviews that they've gone off, and every police officer has interviewed a civilian who's not part of the group, and every civilian has interviewed a police officer who's not part of the group. They study that person, they come back to the workshop, and they present the person that they have interviewed. Each person is that other person they've interviewed, right? That's correct. They don't talk about them. They They, talk in the first person as if they were that other person, including the civilians wearing a police cap when they do it. Yes, yes. And that's that's another exercise. Um, In the third workshop, usually, I ask the officers to bring in their caps. I have them stand on the stage, and they look at their caps for about five minutes, and I guide them through. I ask them, what are they seeing? This is the first time they've really looked at the hat in a long time, perhaps. What do they feel about it? What do they think about it? And they just look at it. And then I ask them to put it on their heads. And the transformation is remarkable. They don't do anything to transform, but the hat transforms them. Mm. You know, think about as an actor, how when you get into costume, all of a sudden you start feeling different. You know, it's a different side of Alan Alda comes out. Then I ask them to offer the cap to one of the civilians. And the civilians come up on stage. They go through the guided uh, looking at the hat. And then I ask them to put on the hat if they wish to. They put the hat on. And I ask the officers to adjust the caps so that they're worn correctly. Mm. And, uh, and again, what comes up is, for example, they'll say, I never realized the burden we place on you. Mm. The hat felt like it weighed 3,000 pounds. Now, some people will say, I hated every second of it. I couldn't wait to get it off my head. It felt like it was burning my scalp. Mm. It's, it's just a hat. But when the hat goes on, you know, Terry and Joe and Sam become the A-team. Yeah, it does imbue you with a certain responsibility. It does. That you don't expect. Right. 
And they, the, the civilians, when they see the police officers put on the hats for the first time, because they've been playing silly games with them for three weeks now. You know, we've been chasing a balloon around or we've been doing all sorts of things. And now, oh my gosh, he's an officer. Hmm. And if I saw that person coming down the street, I have a different feeling than when I see Alan coming down the street with his, you know, without his hat on, without his uniform. So then we start to examine what is that uniform? What is the uniform? How does it prevent us from connecting? And how does it reassure us that there's security in the area? So how do they react after they finish the program? Do you collect their reactions? Yeah, we do two things. We do, we do collect their reactions through surveys. And uh, we started with the, a few rounds ago. Every night, they take their cell phones and they call a Google voice number where there's a recorded prompt. Hmm. And they, they speak into the recording for about three minutes. And so we have a record of their journey. This is after each week of the workshop? Right. And then after it's all over, we have paper surveys. And then a month later, we invite them all back for a meal and to talk about whether it had any relevance for them, whether it had any meaning for them after the workshop was over. So what, either roughly or if you've kept score, what percentage of transformation do you think you see? I think we see a tremendous amount of small change. Hmm. You know, one of the frustrations of the program is it's not going to change the system. Yeah. The system is flawed, but that's not what this is designed to do. Um, but we do see people saying, I listen differently now. I talk to people differently now. Even in my home life w with my family, I'm different. I, 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 uh, I don't come in as the authority anymore. I come in to listen. I come in with the possibility of making change. And that's tremendous. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the thing I hang on to because I know we're not going to change a system. But if we can move the needle that much, that's pretty satisfying. And you, with the performance and the experience of the people who have done the workshops, communicating with their colleagues and friends, it does extend to some extent outside the rehearsal hall. It does. It does. Especially when we get people who are sergeants or officers ah, yeah. coming in to do the workshop, they have direct effect on the people they work with. And we just got back from Belgium and we were working with police officers there. And one of the, uh, one of the gentlemen there, I don't know what his rank was, but he said he had 200 officers who reported to him. And he came into the workshop very skeptical, you know, very much with his arms crossed and sitting back in his seat. Um, by the end of it, he said, this was the hardest training I have ever taken huh. as a police officer. The most difficult thing I've ever had to do. But I'm already, this was a few days after we got back, he sent me an email. I'm already using some of this at work. That's wonderful. What, what did you find were some of the problems they wanted to work on in Brussels? Were they different from the problems in New York? Or? They're so similar. Really? They're so similar. In fact, at one point, I turned to one of my colleagues, 
who was co-facilitating with me, and I said, we could have scripted this dinner conversation. Mm. The same words were used. You know, the fault is the media and uh, the police are killing us. The differences were Brussels is like the Tower of Babel. You know, you've got French speakers, you've got Flemish speakers, you've got Arabic speakers, all in this same city. And literally, they don't understand each other sometimes. Mm, mm. The company we worked with in, um, in, in Belgium was a mostly uh, Islamic group of artists. And they really had strong, negative feelings about police officers. So there was a very wide gap that we were trying to bridge in five days. And it, it was hard. When you mentioned the group of Islamic artists supporting you, and in New York where you get some support from the NYPD, does that raise questions about your independence to organizations that seem to, from the outside, to have one point of view and are contributing money, is that a drag on you, at least in perception? It, it, it certainly can be. And we have to, we have some splaining to do, as Ricky Ricardo would say. Um, yeah. You know, but we limit the amount of money that the police department puts into the project. They give us 10% of the cost. And I won't take any more because I don't want to blur those lines. I don't want people to think that we are a project of the police department. Mm. And in all of our uh, meetings and agreements and uh, me memorandums of understanding, we are very specific in saying the police department has no control over the content of the, of the work. They advise on um, a pool of officers, but we make the selection. And um, the best thing they do, as I said before, is they pay the officers for being there. Hmm. I don't think we could have run a project like this without that. How do you get funded? Where does the money come from? Oh, uh, boy. <laughs> you suddenly uh, looked very tired when I... I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's always uh, a zero-sum game. Every year, it's, you know, we're starting from scratch. Uh, there are some foundations that have contributed generously. There are individuals who contribute generously. Um, sometimes Mayor de Blasio had an initiative for um, not-for-profits who worked with city agencies. And at that point, the city put, you know, I think $50,000 into it. It costs about $200,000 a year to run this project. And um, we're always sort of walking around with our hand out and trying to do dog dog and pony show. But it's... Um, we're going to do it anyway. What can I say? Well, you've managed to do it for 40 years. I can't, I yeah. can't, I can't see it not having yeah. momentum now. Our, our mission is to, to take on projects that scare us. Yeah. <laughs> you know. That's the essence of improvising. Yeah, it, it really is. You know, that's it, exactly right. What's it done to you personally? How has it affected you personally? I've learned so much about acting by doing this work. I mean, let's take, for example, one simple exercise, which I know you know very well, 
which is the mirror exercise. I think it's the foundation of all the all improvising work. Everything. It's the foundation of almost everything we do is humans I, together. I, I am totally in agreement about that. It's the most important exercise I've ever learned in my life. Describe it for somebody who hasn't seen it. So it's two people face each other, and they imagine that they are on different sides of a full-length mirror, and one person is the initiator of the movement, of any kind of movement. The other person is the reflector of that movement, and we talk about them being a reflector instead of a follower because the idea is to move synchronously without planning anything in advance and to really be able to not only see with your eyes, but see with your whole body, see with Just your Just as a mirror does. A mirror That's doesn't it. echo the movement. Exactly. It, it is instantaneous. It's instantaneous. So how close can these two people become to that instantaneous sharing back and forth? And then the, the, the leadership keeps changing back and forth without stopping. So uh, toward the end of it, you know, I change very quickly. So I'll say A leads, B leads, B leads, A leads, A, B, till they don't know, know who's leading anymore, but they're both still reflecting each other. Right, right. And you must do that. You must go all the way, as, as I have often, say nobody's leading. That's right. Nobody's yeah. leading. And, and, then, and they stay in sync. It's just they amazing. They stay in sync. It is, it is truly remarkable. Um, this fellow at Brussels I was telling you about, it was about the third or fourth time we'd done the mirror. And I said, so what was that experience like? He said, I hate it. <laughs> I hate this exercise. I said, why, Dennis? Well, you know, what, what, why do you hate it? He said, I don't like being looked at and I don't like being mocked. Oh, mocked because the person was copying He's him. Imitating. He said, when I, that... say, when I tell my seven-year-old son to go to bed, he says, go to bed. I don't like that. That's like my daughters when they were very little. They'd say, she's making fun of me. She's, yeah, she's that's copying right. me. That's right. But when we did that in the performance, he was the best mirror artist I've ever seen. Wow. He was so in, he was so in sync. Because your job, of course, when you're leading, is to take care of your partner, not to yeah, fool that, them. That's, that's, the, that's the part about, about communication to me right. that's so central is that communicating is not finding the best way to say something. It's finding the best way to get the person you're talking to to hear it. That's right. To know, to know that they're hearing it, to know what they're hearing. Viola Spolin always said, your job when you're improvising is to make your partner look like a genius. Yeah. That's kind of hard to learn sometimes. It's really hard. It's really hard. What's been your experience with the people who have done the mirror exercise, after they, after they do it and it reaches a good point that, that, that really works, do they, do they have the feeling that they've gotten somewhere that they weren't before? Absolutely. Uh, there was a, um, a film director who was part of the, 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 the civilian group, and he was mirroring with a police officer, a woman, and they did this for about 10 or 12 minutes, and it was very intense, and they were really connected. At the end of it, he said, will you marry me? <laughs> <laughs> and she jumped into his arms, and they hugged each other, and it was, it, was, it was wonderful. And people say, I feel like I know this person. I'm, I've just met them tonight, but now I feel like I know you. Well, I wish I could listen to you even longer. But we always end every conversation with seven quick questions. Okay, uh-oh. They're pretty easy, except they're kind of okay. deep. Uh, 
of all the things you could understand, what do you wish you really understood? I wish I understood selfishness. Good. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? By respecting the facts that they have and trying to make the adjustment. Yeah. Good. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Why have you been doing this for 40 years? <laughs> how, do you, how do you answer that? I say, because I don't want to look for a job. <laughs> I don't want to work for a living. Yeah, right. The universal answer of an artist, I right. think. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I guess by picking up the thread of what they're saying and trying to feed it back to them. Mm, oh, that's interesting. It's like it's like one of the games. Yeah, yeah. You think they suddenly hear themselves being heard and start listening? Yeah, well, I, you hope so. You hope so. <laughs> <laughs> at least it gives you something to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's say you're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you don't, you don't know, you've never met before. How do you begin a genuine conversation? Uh, I think I'd say, um, how'd you get here tonight? I mean... Who, who do you know? Who, how, what's your relationship with our, with our host? Sometimes it'll be, hey, I love that shirt. Mm. Can't be a shirt that I don't like. But if it's truthful, and I can start with a, a little thing like that, that can find common ground between us. Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? Uh, what gives me confidence is that when people I respect and admire, say, you're doing okay. Hmm, great. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Oh, okay. Uh, A River Runs Through It by Norman MacLean. And it's a book about fly fishing, ostensibly. And when I got the book, a friend of mine sent it to me. I opened it up. I said, fishing? What do I care about fishing? I grew up in the Bronx. We didn't fish in the Bronx. Then I sat down and read the book, and it was really about being an artist. And it was about this incredibly delicate Zen art form called fly fishing, which has nothing to do with catching fish. Hmm. It's all about uh, being present in the space, which is usually a beautiful trout stream or something like that, uh, and really learning how to be present and, and to be patient teaches you patience. I read the book and I immediately went out and bought a fly rod, not knowing if I'd ever use it. Did you I ever? Just, I, yeah, yeah, I, I love fly fishing now. Oh, that's cool. love, it, did, it actually did change your life, but it, it was the foundation of a lot of what you do. Yes. Thank you for what you do and uh, who you are. You're one of the people I admire most in the world, and I thank you for oh, inviting you're, me. You're very kind. Thank you so much, Terry. You're welcome. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Terry Grease is the co-founder of the Irondale Ensemble Project, where he's also an actor and executive director. 
The program he created in response to the killing of Eric Garner in 2015 is called To Protect, Serve, and Understand. He's been an improv instructor for the Alda Center for Communicating Science, and he says if you watch carefully, you can see him on TV in episodes of Boardwalk Empire and Sneaky Pete. You can find out more about Irondale at irondale.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Keith Houston, who's taken a deep dive into an aspect of communication that we rarely think about, but it's indispensable to meaning. Punctuation. Punctuation initially came out of a way to to speak. The Greeks had all of these different formal rhetorical ways of speaking, and they had a bunch of kind of specific pauses or pauses of specific lengths called the comma, the colon, and the periodos. And what would happen is a reader would be given a text which had no spaces, had no paragraphs, had no punctuation, had very little to guide them. And one of the librarians at Alexandria, a guy called Aristophanes, he said, okay, this is just too hard. When I, a reader, am reading one of these texts, I'm going to use little dots. If I come across a very short pause, a comma, I'm going to put a dot right in the middle of the line. If I come across a medium pause or a colon, I'm going to put a dot at the bottom of the line. And if I come across a long pause or a periodos, I'm going to put a point at the top of the line. And that was literally the first punctuation. So punct or punctus meaning point. These little points, these little dots added by the reader, not by the writer. That's where punctuation started. Keith Houston talking about not just commas and colons, but also pilcrows and tarobangs and octothorps and the whole oddly wild world of punctuation. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Kohler Smart Toilets introduce a new standard of design and cleanliness, sculptural forms, intuitive technology, and total personalization with integrated warm water cleansing, heated seats, and warm air dryers. For peace of mind and convenience, there are touchless lids, seats, flush, and a self-sanitizing bidet wand. Now you can even use voice commands with Numi 2.0, featuring built-in Amazon Alexa. Explore the complete lineup at Kohler.com smart toilets and discover what you've been missing. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes.